Hi everyone. Sorry I can't be with you today, but I hope you're excited for us to wrap up the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to look at chapters 21 and 22, which gives us the final vision of the new heavens and the new earth, or the, the new Jerusalem. Uh, and so as we wrap up, hopefully we have a little time to summarize some of the things we've talked about. Uh, but one of the some of the things I want to mention as we start is to remind us what this book is, right? This book is not called prediction, it's called revelation, right? So it's not about showing us exactly, literally what is going to happen in the future and predicting these events. It's revealing what's really going on, what was really going on then, what's really going on now, and what's kind of, in a sense, really always going on in this battle between good and evil, uh, these earthly powers, the, the nations, the beast, the empires, how they fight against God, the one who is on the throne. And that we see, uh, well, we see God most clearly in Jesus, uh, who Revelation identifies as the slaughtered lamb who dies for his enemies. And that's the way that we conquer, that we achieve victory, is by being faithful witnesses to Christ or being like him and laying our own lives down. And so, you know, as Revelation is trying to bring together all of these images from throughout Scripture that it constantly, you know, picks up from the Old Testament without often citing its sources, we're seeing the way that, you know, God is fulfilling promises. It may not always be the way that we would have thought those would be fulfilled. God can fulfill those promises however God needs to in the way that's going to be best. And so I think that's especially true in what we see here in this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. So I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 21 here for this first vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the waters of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this picture here is of all creation being renewed, or to use another New Testament biblical word, it's all resurrected. Uh, and so we're seeing that the fate of humanity is the same as the fate of everything else. Why? Because God made it all and God said it was good in the beginning. And so God is making it good again. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where mortal is swallowed up in immortality and the perishable, be perishable becomes imperishable. That's the scene here. And so this is the true biblical hope. I know I've talked about this many times before, but it's so important to keep hitting this because we've sometimes missed it, that uh, the restoration of all things is where the story is going. The union of heaven and earth, as we see here. It's not our immaterial souls floating off to an immaterial heaven. Uh, this is consistent through the prophets. Uh, Second Peter, Acts, they, they all talk about this. 
And so we need this biblical view of creation, that there's heavens and the earth, and they're kind of the two sides of creation. And, and so here in the end, what we see is that those two sides come together fully. And so it's, it's described even as a marriage, right? It's the marriage of heaven and earth is, is one way to, to look at this. It's God's union with, with people or peoples, as it says, right? Again, it's this inclusive vision of not just this select group of people, but, but all peoples can be a part of this. Um, and, you know, again, it's, I, to me, this is such a, a bigger and better view of what God is doing to make things right in the end. Uh, verse 5 to me is, is really key because look at it, it says God makes all things new. It doesn't say God makes all new things. Sometimes uh, the vision that we've heard of, of the end is God's just going to do away with all of this and we'll just do something else. No, that's, that's, to me, that's lesser. If God is going to have to trash this creation that was good, but we broke it and so God's just giving up on it. No, God doesn't give up. God is going to renew it and make all things new. And in fact, uh, this word that's used here and is often used through scripture for new, uh, there's actually two different words for new in, in scripture. And this one, the more common one, means renewal, not just, you know, something unique and different. And very often that's, that's what the scriptures are talking about when it talks about the new covenant. That's actually a renewed covenant. The new Jerusalem is a renewed Jerusalem. And so when we are made new, you're not going to be something or someone totally different from yourself. You're going to be renewed and restored to your best self, who your true self, who you are always meant to be, who God created you to be. This is the kind of newness that is being pictured here. And again, it's consistently pictured throughout Scripture. And you see this as when this happens is when God comes to us, right? Who's going, look at what's, who's going in what direction here. Again, I, I think the typical expectation is, is it's about us going to God, right? Somewhere else, uh, heaven that's far away. But it's very clear here, God is making a home with us. Uh, God will be with them. It's an image of God coming to where we are. And of course, it's not the same. It, it's renewed by the presence of God. But the direction is, is God moving toward us. That, again, always the story, the incarnation, right? It's God with us. So why should we expect in the end it's going to be anything different but God coming to be with us? Uh, that's that's the story in the end, and that's the story now, right? Every day and every moment, God is trying to move towards us and come closer, and if we'll just pay attention, we'll see the way God is always doing that. And so if in, in the end, God is fully present and God is, is in everything, God is all in all, again, to use uh, language from 1 Corinthians, some things can't be. Uh, one of the things that seems surprising to us is it says the sea will be no more in verse 1. Well, if you see, that's actually going back to the very beginning. In the Hebrew mindset, the sea is an image of chaos, right? I mean, if you've ever been in the middle of uh, of the, the, the sea on a stormy day, uh, that is pretty terrifying. And even you go to Genesis 1, uh, it's the beginning, it's this chaotic waters that God brings good creation out of. And so in the end, this image of chaos, the sea, it's gone. Uh, there's no crying or pain anymore. And, you know, it's one of these mysteries of, is it mean that we'll never have anything to cry about or be sad about? 
um, as if mourning is a bad thing. You know, if you were with us last week, you know, we emphasize that there is a place for that. And yet, uh, to me, it's more saying that there's a point when God is going to, to address that. And God personally is wiping the tears from our eyes. Um, that, to me, is uh, a powerful, comforting image. And then at the very end of the the section that we read, it lists all these things that, that won't be allowed. Um, no cowardice, no faithlessness, no deceit or lying. Now, it seems like he may just be picking a bunch of things, uh, and you could add more to that list if you wanted, I guess. Uh, but these are all specific sins that are connected to what these churches are going through. Again, this this book is a letter written to seven churches in a specific time, in a specific place, that were dealing with the pressure and persecution from the Roman Empire. And what they were facing was the, the, the temptation to give in to some of these things. And, you know, when it talks about deceit or lying, uh, really it's less about, you know, telling white lies or, and that sort of thing. It's not saying that's fine, it's, it, but it's talking about, you know, these are, to, given to deceit is to give in to what the beast is selling, right? To take that mark and, and believe those lies, give in to Roman idolatry and the Roman way of life or, or their gospel, and so uh, it, it's really saying, it's not, I, the way I understand it, right, if we have an understanding of grace, it's not saying, well, if you've done any of those things, then you're out, right? You can't come in to the New Jerusalem. To me, it's more like they don't fit, right? They don't belong. And so if you're holding on to that, to deceit or uh, faithlessness or cowardice, you won't be able to make it in, right? You just, they can't come into the city, and so you got to let it go if you want to come in, right? The, the image I think of is, have you ever seen a video of a dog that's carrying a giant stick, and it's trying to go through a doorway, but it just can't get it because, you know, the stick is, is hitting the, uh, the door frame, right? If it would just let go of the stick, it could come in anytime. He's keeping itself himself out. So that's the way I understand this here, that if, if that's, if you're going to hold on to those sort of things, well, then, then you're stuck outside in this, this uh, lake of fire, this second death, which we'll talk about a little more of, of how we understand that image in just a second. All right, so next we move into this vision of the New Jerusalem. So I'll read some of this in verses 9 to 21. I won't read all the different sorts of jewels and measurements that, that are included here. But we want to get some sort of vision of what this New Jerusalem is like, starting in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It was the, has the glory of God and radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with twelve gates, and on the gates twelve angels, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. On the three, east three gates, north three gates, south, west all three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on each of them are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Uh, I don't know if you caught a certain number <laughs> that showed up there a, a few times. We, again, we've talked about this image of twelve, symbolism there of uh, completeness, especially connected to Israel. But it, we're, all, we're talking about this uh, city here, right? The city of the New Jerusalem. And again, you go back to the prophets, so many of their hopes focused on God restoring or renewing the city of Jerusalem. Um, and so they find their fulfillment here. You know, if you had asked Isaiah or Jeremiah, they probably, 
in their imagination as they understood it, it was talking about the literal city that was in, you know, the, the country of Israel. But I think here we're seeing it's a deeper fulfillment. It's something bigger than that. Literally, we get the measurements a little later on. And so even if they didn't fully understand it, they were pointing towards it, right? They saw uh, they saw it, but in some ways it was obscure. And so here we're seeing clearly, no, God's full uh, renewal is going to be even bigger than, than one particular earthly city. But it is still connected to that. Now, with this final vision here, there is one theory, a uh, way of interpreting this, that this is talking about uh, the present church, right? A uh, bride of Christ, that's an image or language that is sometimes associated with the church. And so for those who take that interpretation, uh, these final chapters are less about the end times, but more a vision of God's presence with us or in us uh, as the church right now. Um you know, there is, there's some element to that, uh, but to me, there's also the other side of, it doesn't feel like this should be all there is, right? It feels like this is really pointing to something bigger than that, uh, that we can hope for some final consummation, God making all things right. Uh, but it doesn't have to be either or, it can be kind of, in some ways, both, right? That's, again, the beauty of, of symbols, that what we experience now through the church, through uh what God has done through Christ and with the Holy Spirit, it is a foretaste of this ultimate presence of God in the end. But that doesn't mean that God isn't present here right now in a in a very real and powerful way. So one of the questions is, why is it a city? You know, sometimes, again, the way that people talk about the end or heaven is it's kind of a return to the Garden of Eden, right? That we're going to go back to how it was in the very beginning before sin came in and messed everything up. Well, that's that's not the picture here. Uh, and so I think what that's saying is that human society, human building, human technology, all these things are good when they're done in God and for the right purposes. Uh, a city, a civilization is not inherently bad, but it can be distorted and, and often is. Uh, and so when it is, what needs to happen is restoration. Again, not destruction, restoration. That's over and over the picture here. And again, the idea that it's a city shows that this is something communal. Some you know, popular visions of heaven are that, well, I'm going to have my own cloud or my own private heaven where I get everything that I want. It's very selfish and individualistic. That's never the biblical picture. It's always about community which is good news for if we're hoping to, to not be alone in the end or just be with God. Now, it's, if it's a city, then there's got to be a, a lot of people in it. <clears throat> so it's, it's a city, but it also has a lot of garden elements. So uh, we didn't read all of it, but it talks about rivers and trees and all these things. So it is kind of, again, this union of um, you know, the garden in the beginning, but also human flourishing and the things that we can create uh, in God. And so the, the picture here is not a regression to some supposedly perfect state, a, really a childish state, but of unending progress, right? That, that that's, that's where we keep going. And so if the city is huge, uh, then there must be a huge number of people to populate it, right? So it's, it's talking about this multitude, right? We saw them back in chapter 7, from all nations. Uh, that's who's here. And uh, even the size of, of the New Jerusalem uh, it's kind of impossible. I don't know if you can see this very well, but you know it describes it as a cube that's I think 1,500 miles each way, uh, which would you know if you looked just in our country that would go from like Arizona to Florida and then is equally high up. So again, 
literally it, it almost it doesn't make sense but it's this vision of perfection uh and and so it's got room for everybody he's actually quoting ezekiel 32 here he doesn't you know quote it or say where it comes from but uh, there where it said people as in the people of israel here it's peoples plural so again this bigger more inclusive vision uh, and again, we keep going into the next section, and uh, we see exactly how uh, inclusive it is. So I'm going to pick up in verse 22 of chapter 21, and then go into chapter 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, for the Lord of for the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of prophecy of this book. So first we get this note that there's no temple in, in this new Jerusalem, which again, it's, it's hard for us to connect to. We don't have temples today. We're, we don't have that mindset that they did. So to think about what did a temple represent in their mindset? Well, for them, that was where God was present, right? And that if you go to Jerusalem and you visit the temple, God is present there in a unique way that God is not present anywhere else, even though they also know that God is not limited or contained by that temple. Um, and that the Holy of Holies, right? That central place in the Jerusalem temple that only the high priest could go into only one time a year, um, it was a cube, right? Uh, which is the exact same as the measurements of, of the city. So it's kind of saying the whole city now is like the Holy of Holies. God is fully present here, just as the Jewish people understood God to be present in the temple. And so it talks a lot about that there's only light now, right? There's no more night. Uh, it doesn't need uh, uh, lamps or anything like that. Its lamp is God and the Lamb. Uh, and so, that, again, it's a very powerful, it's a common metaphor, but it's a powerful metaphor for God or for Christ, for the Spirit. Because what does light do? Right? It lets you see clearly. Uh, again, if one of the big problems through this book is deceit, uh, the light of the Lamb now shows, no, this is true reality. And in the midst of that, how can you hold on to deceit uh, when evil is truly exposed for what it is, when the truth is clearly seen? Um, how could you not see clearly at that point? You know, in this life, there are so many things that obscure the truth, but it won't be that way here. And also with light, there's there's no life without it, right? If we don't have the sun um, and its heat and its light right together, those provide life. So it's saying the same thing about God. And so since there's no night, 
there's no need to shut the gates, right? You come sometimes hear people make the argument, well, heaven's a gated community uh, to justify certain beliefs, but hey, what? Guess what? <laughs> the gates here are never shut, uh, which is a way of saying, right? There's an invitation there. Uh, cities, ancient cities would shut the gates at night to keep people safe, but it's saying we don't need to do that. Uh, and we see, again, there are elements going back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, the tree of life returns, which we haven't seen since Genesis Three, I think. And this idea of seeing God's face, right? Throughout scripture, that's something that's made clear. You can't look at God and survive. But what was impossible before now will be possible. You know, again, go to that light image. It's like staring at the sun. It's gonna hurt your eyes if you do that for very long. Uh, but through resurrection, when God makes all things new, we're gonna be able to endure endure that and actually enjoy. Uh, fully being in God's presence and seeing God face to face. What we can't handle now, uh, we can handle then. We can fully look on God's glory and, and experience joy from it. And it says God's name will be on our foreheads. Uh, again, this is an image, a symbol of the way that God will fill our minds. Uh, and, and we won't focus on anything else uh, but what God has in store for us. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting, uh, curious, or even a mystery that we won't necessarily resolve today, gets down to this idea of healing for the nations, right? This is in verse verse 2. The tree of life produces fruit, and it provides healing for the nations. Uh, so, what do we mean by that? What, healing for who, exactly, when we talk about the nations? And what do we see happening with them and the kings of the earth uh, through this this story, right? So go back to chapter 21, verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. Verse 26. People will bring in the glory and honor of the nations. Uh, and then this, this same verse about the healing uh, from the tree. So how can these nations and the kings of the earth, who have typically been portrayed as the bad guys, right? The, the evil that's working against the followers of the Lamb, how can they walk by its light? How can they enter? How can they be healed if they've been totally destroyed in the lake of fire? Uh, right? You can see consistently that they are aligned with the beast, with the harlot of, uh, of Rome. And yet, uh, here, there's, there's another part to that story. Um, and this is a place where if you took the New Jerusalem really refers to the church now, then that, that works, right? Because we are the light of the world, as Jesus describes us in Matthew 5. And so we are offering healing and forgiveness to the nations. Um, so that's, that's certainly true, but I, again, wouldn't limit the interpretation just to that. Um, and again, we, we saw what I talked about earlier, of if you're practicing abominations, or idolatry, falsehood, uh, then you're not accepting the true Lord, and you can't bring those things in. But then that raises the question, well, what if they let them go? Um, again, what does the open gate imply? It implies people can come through them. And if you go, we didn't read it, uh, but in verse 15 of 22, it talks about outside the city, right? The dogs, sorcerers, all those who practice falsehood. It implies those people are still out there. And if they're out there and the gates are open, well, what is that saying? Uh, again, I, I, it's not easy to draw a conclusion here. I don't think Revelation itself does. Um, but I wonder, is it so bad to hold open hope uh, that God can heal at any point? Uh, I think Revelation is pointing to that mystery, even as it's also trying to say evil needs to be dealt with. Um, somehow, in the end, God is pulling all of this together, and it's good, 
and there's restoration um, and the gates are open. Um, right, everyone gets what they deserve in the end, but we have clearly seen throughout history, I know in my own life, I'm and we are not the best judge of what that is, of what is best. So that's why we give that to God and trust that God is going to make it right. Uh, we trust that justice will be done when there are evil empires that are oppressing people, uh, especially those that are trying to be faithful to the way of Jesus. God's not going to ignore that. Revelation is very clear about that, but it's also clear that God is merciful. And so if we're going to be people of faith, it doesn't mean we have to understand it, but we trust that God is doing what's right. God will have justice and mercy and love and bring those together in the way that's best. And this will happen soon. As he says here at the end, uh, in a couple of different ways, right? See, I'm coming soon. That's some of the last words here, uh, I assume, from Jesus. It doesn't quote him directly, but that seems to be where that language comes from. And this is something we've seen from the beginning, chapter 1, and, and all through the book. So how do we understand this idea that whatever is happening, it's happening soon, or the time is near? Well, first of all, don't start with our perspective, right? Well, Soon to me must mean in the 21st century, in my experience. Uh, how we understand it has to be true for Christians 40 years ago, 400 years ago, and when it was written, and for us. And so we can understand the last days as all of the time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. So we're living in them, and we don't know how long they're going to last, but it's a new way of life. It's not an encouragement when it says soon to start figuring out timetables and look for you know signs in the newspaper. It's showing that Christ has inaugurated his kingdom, and so we need to live like it. We need to live like we're part of that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven until the day when heaven and earth are joined. And so that's where, again, where I think it's helpful to, to take the, the symbol of this new Jerusalem as what will someday be where God is fully present, to also see that that is true right now as well. God is present in our midst through the Holy Spirit, and we can experience the love and grace of God. We can find healing. We can find comfort to, to everything that we are mourning right here and right now, even if we also hope for God to do more in the future. They don't exclude each other, but God brings it all together. It's a mystery. Right? I hope as we study this book, some things have been made more clear uh, but again, I, I am always hesitant to label myself as a res revelation expert because those people tend to scare me. So I hope we understand a little bit better the love that God has, what God is doing to make things right, to know better what we're up against in this life, but to also be able to trust that God is going to make things right in the end. And if we know that better, if we know the way of the slaughtered lamb, uh, that's not about you know violent destruction, it's about uh, offering ourselves and speaking truth that we find ways to do that right here and right now. So thanks for being with me today. I uh, hope you all have a blessed Sunday and we'll see you next week as we start looking at the book of Proverbs.